The views that I express on this podcast are mine, and the same for our co-host Juan Pablo. Well, they're his. Listening to Panoptic, relating theories of communication, power, and technology to practical institutional issues and everyday life. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Jason. Hey, Juan. How's it going? Good. How are you? Doing pretty well. It's what is it? Labor Day. It is. Yeah, and yeah. it's a nice day outside here Beautiful. in uh, Ohio, where I'm right now. Yeah. Well, it's a good day to talk more about Socrates and strategic communication. Another good day. We don't have the beautiful Greek attic sun and the, you know, the aquamarine blue sea in the distance that they would have had in Athens. But we can still do our best to talk Socrates and strategic communication. So tell me what you, your thoughts were on the last episode. I think we, we you know, we previewed this idea that we were going to talk a little more about strategic communication specifically and i think you had some reservations about the socratic method as uh, a way to arrive not only maybe at uh, at agreements but at arrangements that were good for everybody yeah i i I don't completely buy into it as it's often portrayed in its ideal form as something you know uh, this kind of pure process of working out truth with your peers. It's democratic, it's transparent. But I think there's some strategic elements to it as well in practice. And, you know, we went through that a lot last week. So I have a lot of notes here today. So I kind of want to dig into what I really mean by strategic communication. Mm -hmm. Uh, Talk through that in depth. I'm going to make a case for strategic communication. I think it has merits. and uh, I think we differ a little bit on that, so you're going to cross-examine me a little bit. But, I'm going to uh, Socratic. I'm going to Socratic, Socratic method, method. You. Yep. And um, yeah, so so I, I think this episode is really going to be dedicated to focusing on what do we mean by strategic communication? What are the merits of strategic communication? And is it even possible to not be strategic? You know, that, that's an, I think that's an important yeah. question. So we're going to talk through that. And in the next episode, I think you're going to take the lead. We're going to talk about Habermas and uh, give a critique, a, a critique of strategic communication and see uh, where we land and kind of fight it out in the ring. Yep. <laughs> that's a good way to put it, right? Awesome. All so right. Wait, tell me more about your, I mean, you had some deep reservations about Socrates and his method, I think I had my own ideas about why his method comes off as as flawed in the in Plato's representation in the Republic. But you thought there were some serious limitations to the Socratic method in it in itself. Yeah, well, so we looked at Socrates' use of this method in the Republic. And, you know, he's debating the nature of justice with Cephalus, Polemarchus, and, of course, Thrasymachus, among others. And we both think Thrasymachus is 
is hilarious but also it's it's kind of a sad situation if you see what happens to him by the end of republic and you know as socrates hears the positions of his partners he retorts through cross-examination and he never offers his own clearly articulated solutions all of his questions are leading and and they're they're articulated in such a way to reveal the exceptions to the rules proposed by each party so in, in my view, it seems that there are limitations to the Socratic method. You know, what if one participant is overly opinionated or more aggressive than the others? Or what if one of the participants isn't being truthful? And what are the experiences and biases of the participants? In my view, there are invisible forces at play, the relational and communicative influence of individuals and collective participants on each other, and also the historical, societal, and cultural context in which communication transpires. Yeah. So power and, isn't equally distributed among parties. We we had this conversation the other day, and you yeah. you thought this was a very postmodern analysis. I think. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if postmodern, but it's definitely. Uh, I mean, yes, there's a the po- the influence of of postmodernism on as a critique on this ideal of communicative reason that people in the public sphere talking to each other and using reasons that that somehow is a. Uh, is a process free of power uh, or the influence of power. There is, you know, there is a strong influence of postmodern critique from every going back all the way to Nietzsche and perhaps even before. And so, yeah, all the way back um, to Trasimachus, all the way back to Trasimachus (laughs) for sure. And, and so, and so, uh, and so it's, you know, I'm not sure if, again, there, there has been a strong critique for a long time now on this idea that that communication is somehow transparent, but and that it can be carried out. Uh, that the, the the frameworks we've set up for people to uh, have public discussions are free of influence of power, or even you know even free of the distortions that arise when certain types of speech are privileged. And certain times of certain ways of talking are privileged above others, uh, maybe even uh, without exactly being aware of that, or strategically doing it uh, in order to marginalize certain people and certain publics that don't have access then to the public sphere. So there's a whole, you know, there's there's a whole long discussion of that. And yeah, well, what what you just said there, I think we saw something like that happen between Socrates and Thrasymachus. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you are aware of, of, you know, how your audience is reacting to what is being said, you can bring them onto your side to alienate someone else. And I right. kind of think that's what happens here. Yeah. And and so, you know, that this is the, the episode of Socrates and Tristan because it's really interesting because of the way it helps us think about these questions of communication, power, strategy uh, in the context, in even in our modern context. Uh, because this is such a foundational philosophical text. So, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know if it's a postmodern critique, but it's definitely a critique that brings questions of power and imbalance into into account. Yeah. So, I mean, if I'm doing, uh, if I'm working on some kind of communications-oriented project, change management project, um, you're playing a lot of power games, and you're, you know, mapping who are all the stakeholders here who are the leaders at the top that I need to influence them. So they start making the right decisions. And then we kind of move down the command chain and we see which messages need to go to these people and to these people. And then you kind of reorganize power that way. Mm -hmm. 
So, um, uh, whether or not it's postmodern, I'm not sure, but definitely a lot of uh, power dynamic that is important to how you plan your your strategy here. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I mean, if you read the first chapter of Republic, it's clear that Socrates already has significant influence over his peers. And he really determines the trajectory of this dialectical through questioning. And, you know, like we said, he never has to state his position clearly. Um, although, you know, don't be fooled. I think he has a position that he's just not revealing. Um, so yeah. Thrasymachus actually calls Socrates out on this, but to no avail. And Socrates skillfully refocuses all the participants on the imperative of being specific and accurate, such that they may arrive on a defensible concept of justice. And he easily wins the concurrence of everyone, and he further alienates Thrasymachus. And Thrasymachus seems more and more like a child having a temper tantrum here. <laughs> yeah, well, another reading, and this, again, I'm, I'm in a way, I'm going to be previewing our next episode where I'm going to be offering, I think, a, a, a somewhat of a rebuttal of your specific uh, uh, frame. Uh, framing of strategic communication not entirely a rebuttal but a, maybe a, an interaction or a, a dialogue with you is is another reading is that so, uh, plato i'm sorry socrates is is not yet ready to to lay out his idea of what justice and beauty and all these things are but he does eventually through things like the allegory of the cave lay out his own vision of what the good is, what justice is, and things like that. Uh, and this, I think, goes back to my, what I saw, I, I think, as a, as a larger tension in Plato's project uh, as he mouths it through Socrates, which is he, he realizes that you can't really define something abstract like justice through definitions, propositions, uh, language propositions uh, because you can always find exceptions to these to these sort of linguistic definitions of something abstract and you have to come up with some kind of larger framework that's even in his case otherworldly to define these things and stabilize these concepts that are difficult to stabilize uh, and this is the what's really interesting about the text uh, because he doesn't have yet, and this I'm getting ahead a little bit ahead of myself. He doesn't have the the modern, I would say, post Wittgenstein perspective on communication as something worked out within a group of people and concepts and ideas worked out within language games and so forth. But I'll get to that more next week. But that would be my other reading that maybe maybe socrates isn't being as dishonest as you think it's just he's pointing out how all these definitions fail one way or another and he does have a, an agenda he might not state it he does have a hidden agenda and in some ways he is being dishonest that's true i would also agree with you because he keeps pretending he's 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 totally ignorant he doesn't really know he doesn't you know he's just out there to gain knowledge but at the end of the day once he's like done exhausting everybody else's comments he jumps into this long discussion you know monologue in which he talks about these allegories and so forth and lays out his vision of justice and the good and of course everybody all his listeners drop to their knees and say oh you're you're right and then there's 2000 years of western philosophy there you go yeah um yeah i mean so maybe it's necessary to arrive at this 
understanding of justice that you know i can concede that but but you know i i do think the simple performance of asking calibrated questions causing an audience to take your side while alienating someone else i think the socratic hmm. method in that case becomes strategy or there is a strategic element mm -hmm. to it yeah yeah so um and, you know we know plato or soccer soccer they weren't for democracy so uh it's not maybe it's not that much of a surprise that um you know this method is not all that democratic that the the most intellectual authority is going to lead the dialectical and, and determine the course of of where whatever wherever it ends up landing well plato wasn't but we don't know socrates whether he was a you know a radical democrat or not right, right so yeah. in some ways plato is is instrumentalizing the socratic method for his own ends well i mean I've, I've often just thought about socrates as as a mouthpiece for as for plato i don't know if that's an accurate understanding or not yeah yeah i mean he is he is used as a mouthpiece for plato's philosophy but the real socrates i mean we all we really know is what what people tell us about him people yeah. like plato yep but his method was very in some ways if we think about him just sitting in the agora and asking people in you know the in the in the Athenian marketplace the agora and asking people questions and eventually getting executed for it uh we can talk we can talk about how he might have been in some ways more democratic than he's laid out to be by Plato yeah uh, he got in trouble he you know he he was he was in some ways he got to the point where the the structures of power in Athens found him to be dangerous <laughs> to the youth well we've, we've been casting a pretty negative light on strategic like you know we're, we're really focusing on the dishonesty of socrates if there is any <laughs> dishonesty there now yeah. i actually want to pivot and make the case that strategic communication isn't necessarily a bad thing actually it can be highly desirable in a democratic enlightenment context yeah so and, and you know I, more than that i'm not entirely sure that people are capable of not being strategic so, uh, you know, last episode, I gave a working definition of strategic communication or communications. By the way, I, I use these terms kind of interchangeably, even though they're different. According to academia, we can talk about what those differences are, but it's really not important. Uh, the definition that I put forward was communicating with intent to influence others to modify their beliefs, attitudes, and or behaviors. So that's communicating with intent to influence others to modify their beliefs, attitudes, and or behaviors. So... Sounds horribly nefarious, I know, but when you consider the power of strategic communication to yield better results for all participants, creating opportunities to reveal shared value and improve relationships, then perhaps being strategic is or can be in alignment with ideals like transparency, democracy, truth, and so on, which, you know, these ideals may sound good in the abstract, but they often break down when applied as absolutes to real world situations. And on the other hand, idealism or the appearance of idealism can function as good strategy. You know, for instance, in a court setting, when one's failure, uh, failure to appear to abide by established procedures can result in a longer sentence, or really in any group setting where you aim to influence decision-making, but in order to win the trust of your peers, you adopt the appearance of a team player by encouraging your teammates to voice their opinions, uninteresting they may seem to you. So... This, of course, relates to a more fundamental view of human nature that we are basically or partially selfish, which is my intuition, rightly or wrongly. 
And so this is the position I'm going to take today, Juan and people. I'm going to defend strategic communication and argue that it's at least morally defensible given certain assumptions and conditions. And along the way, I'm going to talk about two famous strategic communications models from the negotiation literature. I, you know, I promised last week that I was going to go into depth into so, some models that, you know, if you want to be more of a strategic communicator, then you can, you know, walk away from this episode using them or applying them <laughs> or use it as a... a a baseline to go and do more research on your own. Um, so, um, you know, there, there are lots of different models. We can't talk about all of them in, in this episode. So we'll, we'll talk about two of them. And, um, you know, like we said, ultimately next episode, Juan will uh, eviscerate me with Habermas. <laughs> well, no, I'm going to try to convince you with a different perspective on, on strategic communication. All right, you're on. Using non-strategic communication. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's see if that's really what it is. Yeah. Well, okay, so what do we really mean by strategic communication, applied strategic communication? I know, you know, uh, we were reading Habermas the other day, and he really kind of takes the time to lay out the mechanics of, of communication and communicative action and how that differs from performative action yeah. and... Um, that's right. not he what I'm doing here. I'm going to focus right. on the practical. We'll we'll, have, we'll get more theoretical next time. But so, yeah, what would you call the basic mechanics or of an applied strategic communication? Which you know the that notion of applied strategic communication means that you can use it in specific contexts to get specific results, right? Yeah. So so I think any practiced strategic communications person is going to perform some kind of audit before opening communication. So I should caveat, um, one of the tenets of Paul Waltowicz's theory of communication, Paul was a 1920s psychologist, communications theor uh, theorist, and philosopher. So he said that one cannot not communicate. So what does this mean? It means that we are continuously communicating verbally and non-verbally to ourselves and other people, whether we mean to or not. And everything we do or do not do creates signals in the minds of observers who interpret those signals relative to their personal experiences and narratives. And this is really good insight for us, particularly if we want to get something from someone else. You know, how do your stakeholders need to perceive you in order for them to take, your, take you seriously? So you need to consider more than just the words you speak, but the entire context in which communication transpires. Yeah. This, I would, this goes even to the way you you dress and carry yourself yeah oh yeah i mean it's understanding this i think can really you know change how you operate in the world uh and especially from an organizational standpoint if you think of where your organization sits in society and the kinds of services it's providing and what kinds of signals that creates in the minds of consumers it's going to help you you know manage risk a lot more because if you're doing something that your stakeholders aren't going to like but you don't you're not aware of that um, it just means you haven't done the hard work of you haven't performed this kind of audit that I'm talking about. So how how tell me about tell me about this audit in your experience and maybe the work you do. How far does this audit need to go for someone well, just, like you? Yeah, well, just you know, at the high level, it's going to start with doing the hard work of deeply understanding what it is that you or your client wants. You also want to do the hard work of asking why you or your clients has these wants. That's important because you need to make sure that what you think you want is actually really what you want. And finally, you're going to articulate your wants in the form of goals and a future state vision. 
So this, the audit enables this kind of introspection and planning, which forms the foundation of your strategy. So before that you, sense? Be, yeah, that makes sense. And before you move on to maybe uh, describing it more in this in this context of of uh, an audit for you, for a client and stakeholders, what about outside? How would you how would you modify this for thinking outside in just regular everyday communication? Would you think this is modifiable to be used in everyday communication? Let's say I'm, me and my wife are trying to figure out how to set up a schedule for cleaning our home. Or we are arguing about who should do what or around the home or things like that. Does, how would that audit work <laughs> in that context? Yeah, well, so often when we fight with our significant others, we're fighting without really understanding what we're fighting about. You know, we haven't established what it is that I want out of this situation before entering the argument. So you end up arguing about all this stuff and you're resisting and you're digging into your position. And at the end of it, you actually don't even know what you're fighting for. So you can avoid a lot of arguments if you kind of take a step back and say, well, what is it that I really want here? What's mm -hmm. my priority here? Is it to make my wife happy? Or is it to, you know, I really don't want her to buy the, spend all of our money on the Lamborghini, <laughs> which was an example you brought up at one point. Not mm -hmm. a not a real world, not an actual. I'm not. <laughs> Thank goodness. Not a, not. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, I think if you do the hard work of, of, you know, trying to understand what it is that I want and then maybe help your partner figure out what she wants or what he wants or they want, um, then, you know, you're, you're kind of reorienting the communication around shared interests. And it's going to make it a lot easier to kind of um, not dig into your position. You're going to uh, unveil an entire spectrum of possible concessions that are going to be valuable to both of you. And that's actually, you know, that's one of the tenets of the of getting to yes, which is one of the strategic communications models we're going to look at from the negotiation literature. Uh, but that we're going to talk about that a little bit later. So yeah. they're, they're going to be kind of... Uh, more practical examples of that down the line that we're mm -hmm. going to talk about. But yeah, so, so I, I, I mean, I think, you know, what did it, what do you want? What are your goals? Where do you want to be after the communication transpires? And then if you think about those three things, you're going to be a lot more successful making your message effective. Now is the audit always purely done from the perspective of the of some of one person or is it is it does it so you were i was just asking you about a situation a domestic situation the audit could take place between two people or is it just something somebody would do coming in strategically into a situation yeah well so i think in in a consulting framework you know it's all going to be based around the client so you're going to have a group of people who come in and you know try to sort out what it is the client wants what we think the client actually wants and that we, we might need to do a little digging to figure that out. And then we'll build the strategy accordingly. Um, I think what you're talking about though is a broader societal stance. If, if there's a way to operationalize this between you know, all members of a society, is that what you're asking? Well, you know, the audit, you, we, I asked you about an, an example outside of uh of a context where you have clients or where you, you know, just everyday life context. And so would the audit be something I do without consulting with my wife 
where I'm just like, okay, well, what are my goals? What are my interests? What are am I trying to get to? Or would I bring her into the audit and do, would we do it together? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And yeah, I mean, I think you definitely could do it together. Um, you know, I think I think it's good to, before you enter any interaction, to go through a process of what is it that I personally want here? What do I want to say? What do I know about this person that maybe is going to make me want to reframe what I'm going to say? But then you can also go through a similar process with your partner and be like, okay, this is how I'm feeling. How do you feel about what I'm feeling? Like, does it, does it, are you understanding it? Do we need to dig into it further? What are your interests here? You know, where have you landed? So, I mean, I think there's, there's a process that happens independently and then together. Got it. Yeah. I mean, so uh, there, there are a lot of relational models that say, you know, how, how do you work through a conflict? Use things like mirroring, uh, labeling, uh, empathy, validation. And these are all uh, things that occur outside of the relationship and also together in, in collaboration right. when you're and, navigating conflict. And my and, and, and to preview, I think my critique of, of the limits of strategic communication is at what point does this sort of communication cease to be strategic and have to become collaborative in a way that cannot be strategic, uh, in which because the interests are of both partners or of both discussants or of communicators are out in the open, that there is a need for people to have to make arguments based on reasons that go beyond strategy and have to face with certain maybe hard well, so how do you, we're going to talk about this a little bit more in, yeah. but I mean, what would it mean? So when, when I think through what it could possibly mean to rid communication of strategy completely, would it mean that, you know, the communication is happening so publicly or not only that it's only public, but that it is being regulated through some public medium or through some centrally yeah. planned medium? And I'm not exactly well, sure what that would look like, but well, I mean, I think you, I think that's a key part of it, right? So part of it would be uh, if you're talking about a non, uh, just a, a private uh, situation, a domestic situation, or relationship among friends, then it's regulated not by any specific uh, public medium, but but it's, it would be regulated by by a set of cultural social expectations and ideas about what friendship means and how people value those things right so you might someone might see friendship as based on loyalty truthfulness and this and that and when somebody else who purports to be their friend breaks these you know these boundaries or, or steps outside these boundaries or doesn't act within those boundaries a, a conversation ensues about why that's the case and you know, that can lead to a reframing of those boundaries or a loss of friendship, right? But in a public setting, in our democracy, it's based on, in our sort of like liberal democratic framework that we have maybe in the United States, ideally, right? Because in private, we, in, in reality, we know it's much more complicated than that. Ideally, it works around this notion that, uh, that laws are based on, that are not, laws are sort of project or come out of a notion of a constitutional framework uh, that reflects a certain ideal of liberty, of uh, individual rights and individual integrity, and that then, and you have these sort of like 
you have this idea that laws will therefore not only the process of bringing about these laws but the laws themselves will be somehow oriented towards towards protecting these freedoms and and rights so so at the end of the day though you know what my question would be at what point does strategic communication face these these boundaries uh and have to become uh communication oriented towards uh in some ways oriented towards uh towards reasons that people can can critique in a public setting or even among private persons among reasons that are formed within a framework of what people of expectations of what people of people that people have about friendship or or relationships and so forth like that and where you can't really where strategic where strategic communication is really not dealing with the the core of the issue and uh and basically at the end of the day would exhaust uh, these these uh, these ideals of friendship and things like that, but we can you know let's I think we'll get more into that into the flesh of that next uh, next episode. But I think yeah, to me well, there's a there's a limit again uh, to strategic communication in the sense of our expectations uh, in normative context specifically. Uh, what right. I mean by normative is context bounded by I you know how people are expected to act in accord with laws or with cultural expectations or social norms or things like that. Yeah, so I mean, if your norms are oriented towards certain ideals, I mean, let's just stick with the Socratic method: so transparency, openness. Then it, you know it might be within the language that we're using itself that we end up speaking in such a way that is not strategic just because we are oriented towards those norms. Although I don't, I don't know if that is convinced because I, I, people, I, I feel like people will come up with ways to subvert those norms. I feel like we do right now. We come up with ways to subvert norms all the time to get what we want through communication or to, to come up with a communication that, creates misunderstanding in such a way that will result in a in, in a certain outcome and i feel like that that is actually the norm in in the um real world <laughs> I, I guess we'll hash that out more um it's so hard yeah. not to get ahead of ourselves right now because i just want to yeah. have this debate right now definitely but, no we'll keep yeah. i think we'll have this debate later right and it's a it's an important debate and because you know what it, would especially it mean, in our context like, i'm having an argument with my partner and um you know Mr. Mr. John regulator comes and he's like, you know what, that technique you use there isn't isn't right. So you're going to have to go back and, and reorient this communication. And you know, like, John, where the hell did you come from? Like, who do you work for again? Like, who? You, wh how, why are you watching us? But, but John isn't. But in the private relationship, John isn't uh, some kind of figure that comes in and steps in. John is know, yeah. John, John is a. John is the hard fact, the hard sort of limits and walls that you run into when you are uh, when you're discussing with your partner your your sort of your your when you're expressing your 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 truth, right? So if you're telling your partner, let's say in the context of a, again of a of a relationship between two people, friends or lovers or whatever, if you're telling them something. Oh, I really want to move in with you, but you don't, <laughs> and mm -hmm. you're using strategic communication to sort of like I don't know, whatever. Can we just plant a flag to, to to move to, it? To be strategic doesn't mean we're lying all the time. I just want to say that, um, but that's what we're talking about right now. So sorry, 
go ahead but could be yeah right but let's say to be strategic means you're withholding some sort of some sort of card from the table is that is that acceptable i i think i think that's acceptable yeah i'll go along with that for now but because you're trying to get someone to do something and you're not willing to just ask for that thing straight up correct well yeah but so Yes, that's correct, and uh, there there are good reasons for for that to be the case sometimes. Right. But, all right. Um, so let's say you're doing you're getting your partner to do something, but you're not willing to say you're not willing to say you're trying to you get communication to con- through you're trying to use strategy to get them to where you want them to be, whether it's what you want to do for the weekend or whether it's what you want your vacation to be or what you want to you know what you want the color of your new car to be or your new carpet. And you were, you know, you're instead of saying, I want a red carpet and these are the reasons why, and let's have a conversation about that, you're trying to use strategy to get them to want to have a red carpet. Is that is that a fair way to describe strategic communication? It may, may, maybe it's, it's an example of, of a strategic communication situation, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so my, and, and, and so a counterclaim against the limits of it and that it's not that somebody comes in and says well you know the arguments you're using are not okay based on our normative framework of no in a, in a private setting those are created by people based on the expectations that they have of each other so you know in our sort of modern world in the u.s not everybody but a lot of people expect uh in relationships that truthfulness is the core at the core of it and that people are uh, honest with each other about their wants and so forth. And if they find out over a long period of time that the that the op- you know that their partner in a relationship is someone who is not truthful and who can't be counted upon to not only say what they think and their belief, but you know and so forth, but is constantly undermining uh, behind the back, sort of undermining or going against what they say. That that uh, revelation over time comes to the forefront and people are able to sort of like see oh well this person is just someone who's who's not truthful so I'm, so to me this is a limit of strategic communication right the fact that over time uh the truth or sort of the manifest uh truth of how people act can come to reveal that their words used strategically weren't always uh in line with their you know weren't always really what they were what their thoughts and I, and feel, feelings and ideas. We will have this conversation more in depth next next week. But I, that would be the kernel, I think, of my of my critique of of the limits again of strategic communication. Yeah. Where and, does and strategic communication meet these hard dead? Uh, maybe you could say walls um, of expectations of of observable, publicly verifiable. Uh, modes you know act uh, forms of acting of uh of actions yeah so someone's going to uh, accuse me of advocating lying in relationships now so uh, <laughs> i feel like i feel like we should we should move forward or i can kind of hash out a little bit more kind of yeah well you know I mean. you can always you could just take you can run with that and just become rich <laughs> by writing a self-help book where you say lying in relationships i'm not advocating know, for lying in relationships <laughs> i agree with you the, the truth the truth usually comes out over time but but sometimes it's it's not a situation where the truth is is entirely relevant yeah. sometimes you know you have to you know consider other things than truth like the state of the relationship there are emotional components here there are yeah you know okay. feelings mm-hmm. that sometimes we don't 
someone sometimes no one knows what the truth is and you know it's more mm. you know there, there's another conversation being had that's equally important yeah. if you want your relationship to be healthy so and you know that this can be extended to to consulting situations to business situations to um you yeah. know in, in any kind of relationship so okay. i mean but l let's talk about selfishness because i think that's an important there's an important comp uh, selfish component here that might help contextualize <laughs> this and, and then help us understand why we can be a little bit self-interested when we enter communication but it still ends up uh, resulting in in often desirable outcomes in in the yeah. long run so what does all this have to do with my intuition that people are basically selfish or partially selfish so um and you know like i said i don't i don't think uh we have to be selfish to be strategic I mean, st strategic is just you know about achieving a certain goals and yeah the, yeah the the means and, and the goals don't have right. to be um oriented towards a selfish want necessarily but I, I i do think this is important so um juan you and i we've been working together for more than a year now to make this podcast happen and i consider you a very close friend and I want you to be happy, and I want you to have all the success in the world. So that's an authentic, genuine feeling that I have about you. Yet, when I take a step back, and I, I wrote this note very carefully, um, I'm able to conceive of other, perhaps less altruistic possible explanations of my wanting you to think of me as someone who supports your happiness and success. Maybe I should say that again. When I take a step back, I'm able to conceive of other perhaps less altruistic possible explanations of my wanting you to think of me as someone who supports your happiness and success. So why? M maybe there's a Darwinian component to this, but one possibility is that we both love to intellectualize and debate. So as long as I'm enabling you to intellectualize and debate through the podcast, then I feel that in the long run, you're more likely to support me in the same way. And if you tell me that you're having a rough week, you need some time away from the podcast, I'm going to say, no problem, man. You do what you need to do. And I'll say that for at least two reasons, I believe. Uh, one, because I have a genuine concern for your happiness and success. And two, because I have a personal stake in advancing our working relationship, which is in superposition to the first reason. So from a strategic perspective, this is what the relationships, uh, what our relationship needs so I may continue to collect dividends. So if I said, you know, Juan, screw your dissertation and articles and so on, you've got to talk about Socrates today for the fifth time, you know, eventually you're going to say, fuck off, man. Like, and, and I'm right. out of a podcast now that we've both invested a lot of time and energy into. So I think it's important. Um, I, I think we should plant another flag here that, you know, being an asshole, which is the zero sum game, can pay dividends in the short run, but this is a risky game. So in the long run, risk tends to escalate. And when it comes to a head, you can lose in a really big way. So this should, this should go without saying, when we take the long run approach of getting what we want, uh, we're likely to generate dividends for all parties involved. So even in spite of our selfish wants, the outputs of our strategy can still be in alignment with Western or Enlightenment ideals, particularly fairness. So I, um, if you don't mind, I just wanted to throw out a few uh, talk about Mill and Rawls. So one of John Stuart Mill's contentions against Kant was that beneath the categorical, uh, categorical imperative, which says something like one ought to uh, ought to act in such a way that can be universalized. So there are obvious selfish motivations behind this. So my claim isn't exactly the same. Uh, I'm not convinced that our selfishness is fundamental, but I do think it's out there in a big way. Uh, 
So I suspect that people generally have hidden selfish wants that are in superposition to genuine altruistic wants, meaning they often work together or, you know, one is more present at any given moment than another one. John Rawls said something similar. He said that people are basically selfish, but this is good because the just society is predicated on self-interest. So under the so-called veil of ignorance, which is this thought experiment in which perfect strangers negotiate the terms of civilization before entering society and discovering each other, you know, the people negotiate fair terms, ensuring that each individual gets an equal slice of the pie once the veil is lifted. So, um... You know, people aren't completely rational. Perception is clouded by experience and bias. So if you want to influence your partner's beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors, then you need to speak a language that resonates with your partner's experience and bias. So you might conceive of goals, partners, and situations where the usage of a Socratic method could be an effective strategy. But what if your partner isn't open or doesn't care about truth? Maybe he doesn't trust you, but you still need him to change something. Maybe you're trying to convince a CEO to add a risk to the, uh, to the risk register. Uh, the company is failing on quality control, and you know it's going to blow up and hurt your shareholders, customers, and employees eventually. So your goal is reasonable. It's probably ethical, but the CEO is a prick. And I've been in this situation, so you're going to have to use strategy to bring him onto your side. Mm -hmm. So um, this is, I, I think, you know, how selfishness plays into all of this and uh, you know, uh, I, th I think a compelling situation where, um, you know, you can you can have your own self-interest for entering a strategic communication situation where the outcomes end up to be in alignment with the wants and, and uh, requirements for society. So, you know, this is this is uh, this gets us to a, a conversation about some some really fundamental philosophical questions, right? which I think we can have maybe more at death, in death next next episode, but questions like, are people fundamentally selfish? Um, what is the nature of good deeds? And are they ultimately, is the horizon of good deeds ultimately a selfish uh, component? Does, is it motivated by a selfish notion? So if we look at it maybe from a religious perspective, is the motivation to be good as it's tied to the idea of salvation ultimately then based around this is the motivational component ultimately one that taps into the selfishness that people have um or perhaps in a non-religious context is the kantian notion of doing the right thing or doing what's considered morally correct always regardless of the sort of like outcome for maybe personal reasons based on some ultimately selfish motivation to to be i don't know to be looked at as a figure to live maybe in the future as someone who was looked at as having done the right thing is the selfish component there then uh, a sort of a sort of historical selfish component of wanting to live on as someone who people think oh that's a good person uh so there's there's some really i think interesting questions there but but another perhaps another question and then I, again i want to preview what i would critique in terms of this notion that selfishness is at the heart of how we organize relations is this notion 
first of all, I think from a from a philosophical perspective and um and one that would be that would be interested in looking at as people as not uh, static, having static identities throughout history and so forth. And also with the in a post Darwinian perspective is that things like selfishness are are not encoded in any way into our biology um, but are or into our sort of social and cultural frameworks but are deeply historical and our our very notion of, of selfishness is one that is uh, taught and learned and that we're culturally brought into and our very notions of how to act and why we do it and our motivations are very much formed socially and culturally and so so uh so that would be to me a critique of the idea that humans beings are by nature sort of selfishness because i would actually argue a very probably a from a very postmodern perspective that people have no such thing as human there's no such thing as human nature there are perhaps a set of human if we want to and and we we talked about this a little bit in one of our conversations recently but my argument would be if you know if we come back in a thousand years we might find beings who who descended from humans that might be so different from us that we would cease to call them human beings. They might not act, think, or have even a similar appearance to us. But perhaps there are some, you know, so there is something that makes the human the human in terms of some boundaries of what we expect to see in a human and, and what we would expect in terms of the body or or modes of interaction or ways of thinking. Um but so, but but we have to be a sort of like in in our post Darwinian perspective. We also have to be open to the idea that that uh, human beings were very different twenty thousand years ago. They will be they will be very different twenty thousand years from now. And our ideas of that somehow there's a stable human nature are in a sense idealizations um, and don't really conform to some hard hard essence that's at the core of human humans themselves. Religious but, people so, would find this deeply troubling uh <laughs> other people would find it deeply troubling as well but uh to, to a sense that would be my perspective i i mean I, would you agree that you know any human that we might pluck from any point in history went through some process of individ individuation which is you know even you know human nature or not that it that process is oriented towards or or embedded in a cult in the culture and society of the time no. There are a lot of external influences. So, um, but so through that process of individuation, you create identity that you become attached to, and out of that you get fear. And so my intuition is, as long as we have identities and we're afraid of that attachment breaking down, well, then we're always going to have kind of an innate want to protect our identity. And as long as that's the case, then how? How are we not being motivated by selfishness at some level all the time? Well, you know, and I think that's an interesting, that's a really interesting way to frame the problem. Um, and in some ways, it's a very postmodern framing of the problem. And it reminds yeah. me of philosophers like Nietzsche and Bataille, uh, the French, you know, a French sort of philosopher who is talking about questions of uh, the boundaries of the human being and how, you know, a radical questions of radical transgression of these boundaries and of losses of self um, are, are open us up to this whole idea of, of losses of identity and how these can be so tragic, but they can also be in some ways, uh, people sometimes aim for these 
losses of identity and, and as they're seeking some kind of uh, ecstatic experience. But but uh, the fact is, you know, you're right. I think we've in our or in our from our modern perspective, human beings are highly individualized in the sense of conforming to this or in some in some sense attaching themselves to this idea of an identity that could be the same over time um, from a postmodern perspective we could also argue that uh, this notion of an identity that's stable even in one lifetime is itself sort of an idealization that people change so much even in a lifetime that their identities uh, can change and that even learning to see one's identity to a certain extent as a construct is part of maybe even becoming reflexive about the whole notion of identities themselves. But I would also say that we value to an extent, and this comes across in our, in our laws, in our ideas, in our philosophy, we value this notion of an identity as central to our modern self in a way that's very different from identity was thought of by perhaps, let's say, the ancient Greeks for whom for whom, just to give an example, right, their, their, uh, their theater, their tragic theater wasn't about individuals, it was about types. People wore masks, they wasn't, the actors weren't supposed to be, you know, acting with their faces, they were acting with their voices, and, they were, and, and so there was a very different conception of what the individual was and how the individual related to the society. So these notions, again, of collective and individual are also shifting and changing, and nonetheless, we do have these very um these conceptions of the individual in, in our present time i think that are that place a lot of emphasis on the individual as sort of centered as sort of being able to reflect on itself as sort of being able to compact and 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 that that colors the way we we want to organize society and and, and protect this notion of the individual too uh, well that's a yeah, again opens up to some really interesting philosophical questions but again, I don't know if uh, if that notion of individuality can be tied necessarily uh, to selfishness the way the way you do. But definitely, for sure, there's a component of how the very no- these notions of hyper individuality can indeed be tied to selfishness. And a critique of American life would many critiques of American life have been about how hyper individualism is linked to hyper-selfishness and hyper-consumerism and things like that. And mm. an inability to think about the collective, anything beyond one's personal interest and the collective good. Uh, this would be a very prevalent, I think, critique of American modern American life too, right? So so there is a component of individuality as it's linked to some, or even some like hard notion of, I, you know, it's, what, it's about what I want without taking into consideration a larger collective element, or even thinking about how individuality is linked to a process of collect a collective process right. without, you can't have individualization without sort of socialization right you, you don't but you don't become individual in a vacuum too so these aren't these are processes that are, are linked okay well again so my, my claim isn't that it's all selfishness but i think selfishness is an important facet of of how we communicate and how we behave and, and operate in the world but mm-hmm. well let's hash it out uh next week um or you know who knows it might come up again today um (laughs) i'd love to just kind of summarize some of my main points here and then maybe let's talk about two strategic communication models that uh, people can use if they want to yeah all right so just to quickly summarize so strategic communication 
in my view these are all these are all from my view so strategic communication doesn't necessarily conflict with fair outcomes even if it's based on selfish wants up for debate sometimes we need to create a plan of attack before entering communication to increase the impact of our message in the aggregate the most impactful strategies take a long-run approach generating a value not just for the one but for several parties in the same vein, strategic communication is a creative process that often discovers opportunities for mutual gain. And lastly, if there was a genuine alternative to being strategic, in other words, if there is a way for us to be genuine, genuinely open, transparent, democratic, all or most of the time, it's not exactly clear to me what that would be. So that's kind of where I've landed here. And uh, unless you have any other comments, Juan, we can move into some some kind of uh, very specific applications of strategic communication yeah now let's talk about some i think some strategic communication models and how would they work out in maybe in the real world excellent okay so as you know i spent a great deal of time trying to figure out which messages communicated through the right mediums at the right times will influence audiences x y and z to change so this isn't a science in fact it's a lot of throwing things at a wall and seeing what sticks albeit we can increase impact by having good data um, but so i wanted to talk about two models of strategic communication from the negotiation literature um, getting to yes and never split uh, the difference if you're an MBA or a communications person, you're probably familiar with at least one of them. In my view, uh, both models are useful depending on the situation, uh, but they also make different assumptions about what people care about and how they behave. Um, so I'm gonna give a summary of each model, talk through some of the main points, we'll compare them a bit. Juan, just feel free to, to stop me, cross-examine me throughout this process. Sure. Um, and we can kind of uh, make sure that we're all on the same page here. So getting to yes, uh, this remains an important component of the Harvard Business School's negotiation uh, curriculum. It's also one of, the, one of the ones that was taught to me in business school. So the newest edition of the book, which was published in 2011, was authored by Roger, Roger Fisher, William Urey, and Bruce Patton. In summary, the authors argue that most people negotiate positionally, meaning they enter the negotiation with a particular position in mind. This can be bad because when we when our negotiating partner refuses to concede our position, we may dig into our position. So this causes our partner to dig into her position. Uh, so the negotiation escalates into conflict, and by the end of it, we haven't received anything of value. We're probably upset, and meanwhile, we've neglected a whole spectrum of potentially attractive concessions by clinging rather arbitrarily to one's position. So what's the solution from a getting to yes standpoint? And the solution is to abandon positional negotiation in favor of principled negotiation, which involves five, uh, five primary tactics. And by the way, this information is read, readily available all over, all over the web, so you don't really have to purchase the book if you don't want to. And while I'm saying this, Juan, I wonder if this idea of principled negotiation might actually be in line with, with what you're trying to do with, with communication here, if there mm -hmm. is a way to... for um, yeah. Yeah. These kind of recommendations, get it from from a getting to yes standpoint, would be oriented towards certain values that are yeah, uh, um, good good for society. Yeah, I mean that's it. There's a where where I will agree with you is that in most real world cases, if not the majority, the great majority of real world cases, people are communicating strategically. Uh, and I'll talk about this more next week. And I think we've had this conversation. I've laid out this point. 
that not you know my argument is that or where I would argue from a what I would call post Habermasian perspective is that um, a language, not people, language orients us to certain I, I think uh, validity claims that we can't escape. Nonetheless, most people, most of the time, are in real life not uh, communicating in this non-strategic. They actually are communicating strategically. Uh, nonetheless, let's say uh, our, our our governmental system, right, where we have these parties vying for power, and they're, they they go they show up at Congress, and there's these rules about how they're allowed to talk and so forth, right? So this to me is interesting because right. what you were saying, the rules that are set up, let's say, in Congress for how people are supposed to uh, be, talk, most of the conversations are strategic. When a Democratic or a Republican lawmaker gets up what they say is tailored mostly towards uh usually it's tailored rhetorically towards getting people to accept something not necessarily based on uh reasons that that we could say are verifiable um and that aren't colored by a strategy of a certain from a certain political front or player right um, and so it's hard to draw a, a line between where strategic, strategic and non-strategic communication ends, you know, and, be, and the other one begins, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think, but I think the rules themselves that are set up in some place like Congress or in our system at large are supposed to aim towards these, this horizon of non-strategic action, or in a say, in a sense, you could say stabilize non-strategic action into an action that has rules that are mutually agreed upon where people can come in and then sort of like, even, even though they will act strategically, they will have to be forced to orient themselves towards a non-strategic uh, dimension. Interesting. Okay, so let's uh, talk about the first uh, recommendation from Getting to Yes, which is separate the people from the problem. So Juan, let's say you've been begging me to collaborate on an episode about anti-natalist philosophy. That's the anti-procreation and life basically sucks movement. But you can't you can't get me to budge on this. I say, no man, that's a stupid topic. You'll never you'll never catch me uh, giving greed, uh, credence to such a stupid philosophy. Well, you might think, wow, Jason is really being an asshole again. This guy is just a selfish, narrow-minded quack, also a liar, apparently. So, <laughs> of course, saying <laughs> saying that out loud probably wouldn't help your case. Fisher, Yuri, and Patton want you to realize that I'm a person with unique experiences, thoughts, values, and feelings. Maybe I had a bad experience with an antinatalist. You don't know. So if you listen to me, if you explain your reasoning in a clear, compelling way, and if you show me that you care, then I'm more likely to come around over time. Mm-hmm. Anyway, in my opinion, getting to yes doesn't provide a very useful uh, guidance on the matter of building trust with your negotiating partner. This is a psychological challenge that Chris Voss talks about in his book, Never Split the Difference. And it's actually one of Voss's criticisms of getting to yes, but more on that later. Okay. So uh, another recommendation is focus on interests, not uh, not positions. So the authors give example uh, give the example of President Kennedy negotiating with the Soviets to impose a comprehensive ban on nuclear testing. So the question was this: How many on-site inspections per, uh, per year should the Soviet Union and the United States be permitted to make within the other's territory to investigate suspicious seismic events? So ultimately, the Soviet Union agreed to three inspections, but the United States insisted on no less than 10. So the talks completely broke down, and no one stopped to consider what an inspection might look like. Would it involve one person looking around for a day or 100 people? 
snooping indiscriminately for months. Basically, there was a lack of creativity here. According to the authors, um, Kennedy missed out on a wide spectrum of possible concessions, uh, which could have averted a nuclear catastrophe. So the authors recommend uh, something they call negotiation jujitsu to ward off positional tendencies. And this really just involves breaking down the cycle of escalation by refusing to react negatively during a negotiation and remembering to refocus on the core prescriptions of getting to yes. And prescriptions like continuously pivoting to interests and at least three others that I'm going to talk about next. Juan, did you have a comment on this case here? Yeah, only that, only sort of the, the very superficial comment that this was, that this is a strategic situation, communica communication situation, right? So the example of the U.S. and the Soviets uh, negotiating about nuclear treaties and so forth is a strategic communication, a geopolitical strategic communication, right? Uh, but but uh, in, in such a communication, this gives us, I think you're right, this gives us some really valuable insights for thinking about how there's different ways of, of carrying out a strategic element, which are not just, hey, this is what I want, and this is how, you know, I want to get it, and now I'm going to figure out how to do it, but maybe even yeah. trying to tap it to something else uh, beyond those immediate sort of demands or something like that okay um another recommendation is invent options for mutual gain so this is pretty straightforward and it ties back to what we said about rawls so how do you consistently win in the long run by you do it by identifying solutions that generate value for all parties so um that's really all i have to say on that one we've already <laughs> talked pretty pretty aggressively about that one mm-hmm uh, another one they the authors put forward is insist on using objective criteria. So when someone makes a threat or a ridiculous offer, for instance, you know, okay, I want my starting salary to be somewhere between 1.3 million because scrubbing the walls is really hard. Well, then you may want to appeal to objective criteria such as the market value of wall scrubbing to bring your negotiating partner down. Um, other criteria can include expert opinions, customs, and laws. So, I mean, here also there might be an opportunity for that kind of normative framework we were talking about to um, to to make this less strategic than we're saying it is. Yeah. And I, I would come back, I'll probably come back next week and, 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 and or next time we, we you know, we have an, an episode and discuss this a little more. But to me, these are, this is an interesting framing of strategic communication because in some ways it's looking for ways in which strategic communication necessarily at some point has to revert to making claims that are um, that are validity claims that would be verifiable or not. And so one wonders to what extent does it continue being strategic if one is trying to appeal to to a common knowledge or to or to common values um, that would be acceptable by all. You know, to what extent does this continue being strategic? Uh, and yet, and yet, you know, and yet, I guess you could say that even if you appeal to common values, you could be strategically sneaking in your own interests um, by doing so and by pointing to strategic criteria that pointing to facts and pointing to values doesn't necessarily mean you're not acting strategically. Right. But, you know, it also could be that genuinely... Um, you know, b appealing to objective criteria, um, being genuinely honest and, and um, you know, uh, concerned about the interests of your party 
that that could that could be the best strategy for you it it could create the best outcomes you know depending on the situation and then does it stop being strategic at that point or if you know you're doing all those things intentionally to achieve that outcome still then is it strategic and i'm not sure where the line is between those two things well, I think next week I'll I'll try to lay out what Habermas's definitions of these are because he has specific definitions of what strategic are, um, and so if you are trying to reach a collaborative goal that everybody has agrees upon based on reasons that on common values and on common criteria, and everyone's being open about reaching that goal and how to do it, he would call that non-strategic communication. Hmm. But we'll, I think we can talk about those technical dif- differences from a, again, from a communication sociological theoretical perspective. Uh, that's that's the one that he's coming from, right? Yeah, it's a different from maybe a, uh, the models that you're presenting, which are, which are uh, strategic communication models presented from an I would say, a non sociological perspective. Okay, well. There's a there's one last recommendation here, which is a know your BATNA. So your BATNA is your best alternative to a negotiated alternative. So why is this useful? We often hear about anchors, for instance, that if you want a 3% raise, you should ask for 5%. By um, anchoring your employer at 5%, you cause them to make a counter based around that offer. So hopefully they come down on a few points and meet you at your 3% target. So the BATNA is kind of like that insofar as it represents the value of some alternative that exists outside the negotiation. So for instance, if I have an offer from someone else who's already agreed to pay me a salary of three, uh, 3% higher than my current salary, then assuming salary is my primary interest, I know that 3% is my true cutoff. So if I didn't have this alternative, then accepting a 2% raise from my current employer might be the only thing I can do. So that's why bad note is important. Uh, it basically lets you know when to walk away from the negotiation. Mm-hmm. So if my bad is I want... 80% of the house with red carpet. Um, but I, you know, and I get only 82, then I'm happy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sense strategic uh, communication in a domestic setting. Well, so that this ties back to kind of that audit we talked about, you know, goal setting and, and doing kind of a little planning on your, on your, um, on your own before entering any collaborative process with your partner, because, the collaboration is going to be a lot more effective if you've already kind of identified these things that you want. And, you know, if you enter the negotiation and you don't even know what your interests are, then what are you even negotiating about? It's just going to be a conflict. All right. So th- those are, you know, this is a very quick summary of, of getting to yes. But I think there's a lot in there that, you know, if, if it's interesting to you, you can go online. There's uh, a lot of public information on, on um, Harvard Business Review that where you can learn more about how to operationalize these different recommendations. Now, uh, there's this guy, Chris Voss, who wrote this book, Never Split the Difference, who really doesn't like getting to yes. <laughs> and he thinks it's a, it's a just a, you know, completely discounts human nature. So, you know, this is because getting to yes presents a rational approach to getting what you want. You know, you stay focused on interests, you resist positional bargaining, you explore opportunities for mutual gain, and you appeal to ad- objective criteria to encourage uh, reasonable concessions. And you know when to walk away based on your BATNA. So there's kind of a clear-cut <laughs> way of doing this. Right. But he thinks people aren't that clear-cut. So there's a lot of you know evidence to suggest that getting to yes works, albeit a lot of it is anecdotal. But Chris Voss believes that rational approaches can be limiting, largely due to human beings not being very rational. 
He argues that getting TS fails to provide an effective method of building rapport and trust upon which negotiate uh, which uh, most negotiations are decided. And moreover, he observes that yes, as in getting TS, often doesn't mean yes. In fact, it usually means get the hell away from me, you're annoying me. So in such cases, you know, you may walk away <laughs> from the negotiation thinking you've got what you wanted, only for the other to renege on the terms of the agreement the next day. Hmm. Um, so all, Voss, he offers his own approach to getting what you want, and it's a lot broader, perhaps less rational than getting TS. And uh, it's worth noting that he was a hostage negotiator for the FBI. And according to Voss, hostage negotiators uh, largely do not use getting TS to save hostages. And if they did, they did, there'd be a lot more dead hostages. So instead, they win concessions by applying basic techniques from the counseling world, like empathy, listening, mirroring, open-ended questions, things that we were talking about earlier. And he offers a lot of these recommendations, but I've selected um, five that stand out to me. Yeah, it's only I would just comment really that it's interesting to me that uh, where one perspective, when one model is based on the idea that that uh, people will ultimately be reasonable to an extent, I guess. The other one is based on the model that uh, people are not reasonable. And both, and again, I will do the Socratic annoying philosophical thing and say <laughs> both of them take into, both of them make idealizations about human nature, about humans as sort yeah. of being or not being ir irrational. One of them, I think, is coming from the perspective of sounds like it's discussing negotiations as uh, stabilized in a in a framework of of possible you know interest positions that you could find and i think that points to the to the context from which this this the model is being formed which is one that is maybe business oriented and the other one is talking about people as not being you know as not being uh, rational and uh, as actually being in you know, in some ways, having one having to deal with them not rationally, and that also speaks to the context that the the person who creates the model is speaking from one who is this you know hostage negotiator, and to speak of a hostage situation and watching one in which you could come up with common interests is already to to sort of like be beyond the possibility of having a non strategic, you know, basically you're enmeshed in a strategic situation. There is little. There is little beyond convincing someone that what they're doing is completely wrong for for legal, ethical, moral reasons uh, to get them to stop doing something like a you know a hostage situation uh, without using strategic communication, right? Right. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. So yeah, ho like a, a hostage situation is not a normative situation. So right. Norm you're already broken. The, the norms have broken. Apply. Right. The norms have already been broken, and the you're in a you're in a beyond you're in a you're in a specialized sort of moment of communication which unfortunately there's someone like Voss but always have to have reverted to to strategic communication unless <laughs> he wanted you know the Socratic method would have led I think he's right probably to more deaths yeah that's that's really interesting I hadn't thought about that so you know maybe this bias he has is making him recommend kind of a uh, unnecessarily strategy for any communicative situation well you Although, know it's you interesting know, the, the models you're presenting would be interesting if someone applied them in the real world would they find that Voss because of his perspective is actually offering a, a system of st strategic action that would really fail in the business world because it would be so 
it would so forget that you're not dealing in a hostile situation in the business world or in the another institutional context or a personal context, right? Huh. Um, I don't know. That's a, so, I think that's more of an, a question, open-ended question about how these would apply in the real world. Voss has his own consulting firm. I think it's called Black Swan, where he provides negotiation support to businesses. So I'd be curious to hear from those businesses and see mm. how they've operationalized these. Anyway, you know, a, a lot of these recommendations I use sometimes. And, you know, once we dig into what he's really saying, it might be that they're not as extreme as we think they are. Mm-hmm. And they, they might just be kind of basic psychological truths about people that could, you know, might actually be compatible with the getting to yes framework if you just kind of meld them together. Yeah. So, um, you know, let, let's talk through them and, and see where we land. But yeah. the first one was um, mirroring, uh, mirror words selectively. So w- what does that mean? Mirroring simply refers to repeating what someone has said. So Juan, if you say antinatalism isn't stupid, it's the best thing since sliced bread, I might respond <laughs> so you think that antinatalism is really great. And you'll say yes. But now you'll keep talking. You'll go deeper so um, I can learn what's really driving you. And that's a completely unconscious response, according to Voss. You know, he says that mirroring causes your partner to reveal information. It makes them feel heard and understood, thus becoming more receptive to your interests. So Voss recommends a laser-like focus on what the other party has to say. And this is just one of the, the quickest ways to establish a rapport and make your partner feel safe enough to, re- to reveal himself. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, maybe it sounds a little bit nefarious, but we all know that listening is a good thing for a relationship, you know, if you, for any relationship, if you listen to your partner and if your partner feels that he or she or they is being listened to, well, then that's good grounds for the relationship to grow. And then you're probably going to have more consensus moving forward. You agree? Yes, and I would say, however, though that again, this is this is uh, Voss's model reflects the specific situation from which he's from which he develops it, which is uh, one in which one does all the listening and the, and does none of the revealing. Um, right. You know. Right. In, That's in, true. Uh, in, and so, and so, uh, perhaps you could turn it on its head and say, well, one in which both do the listening and the revealing cre- is a different model of communication. That again, we would question. I would question to what extent does it remain? Isn't isn't strategic? this what Socrates did to Thrasymachus? He did all the listening and all the questioning, but didn't reveal any any clear cut position. He Maybe did eventually. Yeah. I mean, he, he did, did eventually, eventually yeah. but Just for to, you're to right go, for a long, long time. time. For and he did even as he lied about the fact that he had no position the whole time. Which we can look back at the at the text and say, oh, he was lying. To all of these listeners, listeners, he was saying, oh, I don't know anything. I'm just asking things. And he was just waiting till he undermined everybody's position. And then he basically went into an expositionary mode where he finally revealed everything. Yeah. But lying all the while. So he was being strategic. Uh, motherfucker. <laughs> Practice tactical empathy through labeling. So another effective tactic, according to Voss, is tactical empathy, which involves labeling. So this is distinct from mirroring in that you want to describe how your partner's feeling based on what he's saying about you. So through labeling, you demonstrate to your partner that you see the complexity of his emotions or fears. And Voss proposes phrases like, um, it sounds like you're afraid of X, or it looks like you're concerned about Y. 
These phrases can have an effect of disarming your partner and making them feel uh, feel more receptive to your interests. And another form of labeling is the accusation audit, and this involves kind of listing all the horrible things that your partner probably thinks about you right at the start of the negotiation. And this can also be incredibly disarming and allows the negotiation to move uh, toward mutual gain. So um, again, similar to mirroring, uh, again, mm -hmm. like listening is key here. And um, you know, one thing that I didn't mention is sometimes mislabeling your partner's emotions can be helpful because they're going to have a very defensive response, but it also creates an opportunity to create more understanding. And then they're also going to reveal more information because they're so offended that you said they're, they're anxious when in fact they're sad or something yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. So that's another one. Another, uh, this is a, an interesting recommendation is, um, and, and where, where he kind of really comes up against getting to yes, and he recommends getting to no. So uh, remember that, <laughs> yeah, remember that yes often doesn't mean yes. So Voss argues that getting to no is often required in order to bring your partner to a genuine yes. And this is because uh, our partners in negotiation offer utter a yes simply because they feel pressured and they want it to stop so they say, yes, of course, this isn't a real yes. So they renege on the agreement a day later. Yes is a defensive move, but no is safe and secure. So it makes your partner feel in control. And this allows for a genuine yes down the line. So how do you start with no? Voss proposes no-oriented questions like, is now a bad time to talk? Or have you given up on this project? So um, this actually leads into the next recommendation, um, which is... Uh, trigger a that's right so once you've convinced your partner that you can uh, that you can be trusted that you understand him through mirroring label and getting uh, labeling and getting to know then the negotiation is ripe for a breakthrough so your partner will reflect your trustworthiness and understanding by responding with a that's right or some kind of similar statement something that that signals understanding so according to Voss, when you reach this point of understanding a that's right statement this is better than yes so it's a way of um of basically saying we're finally ready to move forward with the deal because we have mutual understanding and, and we're kind of in sync with each other at this point. <laughs> this reminds me of those tweets going around. You think sex is good, but have you heard that's right? I haven't heard that before. <laughs> it's just a stupid tweet going around where it's, the joke huh. is you think sex is good, but have you, you know, and it's something that's not sex. So have you, you think sex is good, but uh, you know what's better than yes? Or you think yes is good, but you know what's better than yes? That's right. Hmm. You should cut that out from the... T <laughs> you should cut that section out. Cut that out. <laughs> Next. Ugh. I'll walk uh, myself out. Well, actually, you know, if, if you are if you want to have an effective tweet... I mean, I don't, I'm not an expert on, on Twitter, but if you... I wonder if you were to say, you know frame your message as isn't um i'm trying to think of something you know isn't uh what's something that's really horrible isn't this thing that's really horrible really great and people say no but then you suggest something that maybe isn't as obvious but they're going to be more inclined to be like oh yes well that sounds better than what you just suggested so that you you, you move from this point of no i'm in control mm -hmm. and that's obviously like a horrible thing but now this is like a far more agreeable thing that you've said. So you've actually moved yeah. them closer to coming onto your side through this kind yeah. of thing that Voss is talking about here. Mm -hmm. 
So the, the, the last recommendation is ask calibrated questions and use silence strategically. So Voss proposes using open-ended or calibrated questions, such as, how am I supposed to do that? And what do you mean by that? These broad questions force your partner to exert mental energy to conjure an answer. And as they do so, they reveal critical personal or situational uh, information, giving you a leg up in the negotiation. And at the same time, calibrated questions can help your partner feel in control. So you're not making any demands. You're not insisting that your position is correct. You're just asking broad questions. So this semblance of control is important as you condition your partner to make concessions. Voss also suggests that after you've uttered a calibrated question, you ought to keep your mouth shut. Silence can uh, be really uncomfortable. So uh, when, when you get, you know, when you shut your mouth and you don't say anything and maybe you have that point of, you know, if it, you have a period of awkward silence, that's going to encourage your partner to start rambling, unconsciously slipping potentially useful information along the way. So um, that one sounds especially nefarious, but um, <laughs> I've used that. That one is very easy to operationalize. I mean, just have a conversation with someone. <clears throat> ask a question and then shut your mouth and see what happens. And yeah. most likely they're going to start rambling off on, on all sorts of things that could be very revealing. Yeah. All right. So many aspects of these two negotiation models can be applied to strategic communications in general, uh, helping us influence the behaviors, attitudes, and beliefs of others to get what we want. At its core, getting DS is about revealing shared interests to reach consensus Never split the difference at its core is about developing the relationship to reach consensus. And in my view, neither of these models are actually nefarious, even though sometimes they sound nefarious, especially Voss. But in fact, many of Voss's recommendations can be applied in our personal lives to strengthen friendships, to listen better, to foster more understanding, and to collaborate on solutions. So I think there's a lot of good stuff here. It potentially creates problems when we start to dig into the norms of communication as we're going to see next time with Habermas and yeah. I'm excited to hear uh, what you have to say about all this one yeah I think well next week we'll next time we discuss next time we talk we'll reframe I'll try to reframe some of these questions from again uh, uh, you know the perspective of, of maybe philosophical pragmatism and uh, discourse pragmatism and sort of it's going to be more of a theoretical conversation but I'm going to touch upon what you were saying and have some have some concrete discussions about how how we can discuss the boundaries of strategic and non-strategic communication uh, and so forth right so it's this you know you, you you you're trying to think about how some of these strategic models can actually be used in everyday life perhaps in a in a way to actually reach agreements that might be better for all um and i think i'm going to try to talk about how nonetheless there are limits to let's say a boss's method which is to a sense predicated on on understanding the other person's motivations but not necessarily ha therefore having more of a range of control by knowledge of the person's motivations without necessarily revealing yours uh, and the problematic dimension of that when it would come to say um, a sort of discussion where agreement would have to be reached based on common set of values or or real agreement so so well you know um lots to discuss next week and to continue arguing about yeah well i'm looking forward to it and 
hopefully uh, some of you uh, strategic, strategically minded people are going to start being even more strategic as a result of this episode. <laughs> Do you enjoy what you're hearing on Panoptic Pod? Is the application of philosophy, media theory, and communications theory to everyday practical contexts something that you find interesting or useful? If so, please consider supporting our podcast through Patreon at patreon.com slash panopticpod. You can also access our Patreon through our website, panopticpod.com. There you can also drop us a line or a comment. Jason and I are always looking for ways to improve this podcast. Your support and comments will help us in that endeavor.